Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 7. And I want to share with you a message that I was uh, thinking about sharing this past Wednesday night at our Thanksgiving Eve communion service before I had to uh, put myself on the injured reserve list and ask Chris to fill in for me. I had a a surgical procedure earlier this week that's been a lot uh, longer and harder to recover from than I expected. I guess I'm not as young as I used to be and uh, getting to appreciate uh, those of you that have to go through a lot of this stuff uh, more than I've had to and um, just appreciate your perseverance and the example you set for all of us and uh, just enduring some uh, some rough roads that you've had to go through, and I know some of you um, in our church live with just chronic pain, and uh, it's just a way of life for you, and uh, frankly, I don't know how you do it, but uh, I know it's by the grace of God, amen? And uh, you guys are a great example to all of us, so thank you for that. But um, this was a, a passage that had come to my mind, and I was meditating on and uh, thinking about as far as preaching a, a, in a Thanksgiving context, I thought this would be appropriate um, on Wednesday night, but I I think it's um, still appropriate this morning, as hopefully thoughts of Thanksgiving are still lingering in our minds. In fact, that uh, song that we just said, uh, sang together, uh, Jesus, thank you, um, I could just hear the uh, individual that we're going to meet in this story, uh, I could hear her singing that song. Uh, That would have been maybe her theme song um, because of the way she was rescued from her life of sin by Jesus. And so let's look at this story, Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, and that goes to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was, was requesting Jesus to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, there are so many amazing testimonies of people that encountered Christ during his life and ministry. And Lord, this is one of the most precious of them. And I pray, Lord, as we consider this woman's life and how Christ radically saved her, transformed her, Lord, that it would cause us to be more grateful for our salvation, more grateful for the forgiveness that we enjoy of our sins, 
And Lord, that it would produce in us more love to Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this may sound like a familiar story to most of us, and it may be because uh, we remember that this is a story that is told throughout the Gospels when really it isn't. Luke is the only one who records this particular story. There is a similar story uh, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John where where Mary, the uh, sister of Martha and Lazarus, Uh, anointed Jesus' feet with oil in Bethany just days before his crucifixion, which symbolized uh, his preparation for his death and burial. But Luke's account here of this nameless woman anointing Jesus' feet during a dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house is clearly unique. Um, The language itself that Luke used to describe this woman in this story, along with just the overall sense of this passage, has led commentators to conclude that she was a prostitute, a woman of the streets with a sordid past and a sleazy reputation. She could have been likened to as the town tramp. In fact, I considered titling this message, A Thankful Tramp, because indeed she was very thankful, as we will see, And she was indeed a tramp. Let me read for you the imaginative picture painted of this desperately lonely, hurting woman by a man named Ken Geyer in a great little devotional book he wrote called Moments with the Savior. And again, he's embellishing, of course, this account, but I think it really brings us into this scene well. She's a prostitute. Her evenings are spent standing on a street corner, soliciting business. Her mornings are spent sleeping in, nursing hangovers. She drinks with her lovers to get her through the evening. She drinks alone when they have gone, until at last she drinks herself to sleep. For her, the wine isn't a beverage, it's a painkiller. It makes her numb, and numb is the best she can hope to feel. It is dusk, and once again she pours herself a drink. She lies a moment on her bed and stares at the ceiling. How many times has she lain there with a man staring at that same ceiling, pretending to enjoy herself, pretending she was not only wanted but needed and in her wildest of fantasies loved? But she realizes she was wanted for only one thing, needed only for a night and loved not at all. She sighs as she gets up to get ready for still another night. Around her neck, she puts a necklace from which she hangs a small alabaster jar of perfume. She fixes her hair seductively, drapes a few tawdry scarves around her shoulders, smears some color onto her face, and puts on a pair of spangled earrings. She goes out to her customary corner where she takes the vial of perfume and dabs a little on her neck. She has met all manner of men on that corner, from shopkeepers to those who tax them, Tax them to those who receive their tithes. They want to stay with her at night, but by morning they're gone. Men, they're all alike. Or so she thinks until she meets Jesus. It may have been she heard a public sermon that Jesus had preached, or maybe he had stopped to have a personal conversation with her as he passed by her on the street. But this story infers that she had had a previous encounter with Jesus where he had told her she would never find what she was longing for on that street corner. He went on to tell her about a love so pure it could wash away all her sin. He offered her forgiveness and promised her peace if she would be willing to turn from her life of sin and place her faith in him as her savior. If you were to check a harmony of the Gospels, you would find that just before this particular event, Jesus had given his well-known invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, when he cried out and said this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. Can you imagine if that was indeed the message that this woman had heard come from the mouth of Jesus, how that would have resonated with her life, would have penetrated to her very core? Well, with that as a background, let's look at our text here in Luke chapter 7, and I've just broken this story up into six sections. First of all, we see the invitation, the invitation in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So here was one of the Pharisees, asked Jesus to come over to his house for dinner. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the Pharisees. They were the most influential political and religious party of the day. They were the religious leaders of Israel, and yet they were proud, they were self-righteous, they were legalistic, and they were hypocritical. And they viewed Jesus as a threat to their power and their influence. And so they were constantly trying to find a reason to arrest him and have him tried, have him killed. In fact, just look at the immediate context back in verse 29. It says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Verse 31, and this is Jesus' response, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? In other words, Jesus is about to confront these Pharisees and uh, the other uh, religious leaders. He said, verse 32, they're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man, and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So verse 34 tells us the general attitude of the Pharisees towards Jesus. That he was a a gluttonous man and a drunk and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and all other sorts of riffraff. And we're going to see, as we go through this story, this was indeed the attitude that this particular Pharisee named Simon had towards Jesus. In fact, he treated Jesus this way when he entered his house, which makes me think that he had an ulterior motive. He was not thinking hospitality here. He was thinking hostility. He was going to try to trap Jesus in something he said or did and give him ammunition to use against Jesus to prove that he wasn't the Messiah that he claimed to be. I mean, if this wasn't his motive, then why would, or I guess I should have said it this way, if, if this was his motive, which it, it clearly seems to indicate, then why would Jesus accept his invitation? If Jesus knew full well that he was walking into a trap, that, that, this, that this meal would cost him more of his reputation, why would he go through with this? Well, I think it's very simple. Jesus loved this self-righteous Pharisee. And I think this could be easily overlooked in the story because the emphasis is so much on this woman and how much Jesus loved this woman, or maybe more so how much this woman loved Jesus. But don't miss the fact that Jesus loved this self-righteous Pharisee. He had a burden for this guy because he knew he was blind to spiritual truth. And so he wanted to help him see his sin so that he would seek forgiveness from him as his Lord and his Savior. And I think an appropriate question that we should ask ourselves, first of all, is do we have this same kind of love for lost people? Or, as we're about to see, do we have a critical, self-righteous attitude towards sinners, 
towards immoral people. See, if we have a burden for people's souls, that will motivate us to befriend them, to reach out to them, to build relationships with them, to to hang out with them, to, to pray and look for ways to share the gospel with them. Again, I'm not suggesting that you go out to the bar or the club and hang out with them to reach them for Christ. But we shouldn't be opposed to accepting their invitation to to dinner or to their get-togethers. Again, as long as it's not going to cause us to stumble or in any way undermine Christ's reputation. I think the key factor to consider is who is influencing who. Are you influencing them or are they influencing you? Jesus clearly influenced Simon while he was at his house. And so even though he was uh, in a potentially bad situation, he was able to redeem it. We recently received an invitation, Kel and I, someone came and knocked on our door and it was one of our neighbors and they were celebrating their 80th birthday and uh, they invited us to their party. And this is a, a, an unbelieving couple that we've been trying to witness to for years. And um, the invitation said, tacos and beer. And uh, I showed Kel and I said, we're going. I said, this is a, this is a God-given opportunity to, to hang out on their turf and uh, to hang out with everyone else who's going to come to this deal. And uh, it was a joy. It was a blessing to be able to go and just interact with people um, in, in a context that rarely do we get invited into. And, um, and so we were thankful. And again, take advantage of those opportunities as the Lord provides them. Pray for those kinds of opportunities. The Lord, will, the, the, you'll be surprised that he'll come knocking on your door uh, to invite you to be a part of something that you might not normally participate in, but uh, you could see this as an opportunity to share Christ with lost people. And so we have the invitation, first of all. Secondly, the intrusion. The intrusion. Notice verse 37. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. By the way, you may have in your margin there um, an alternative translation for a sinner, and it's an immoral person. It says, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And so here we are during the course of this dinner, this notoriously promiscuous woman walked into Simon's house. Now that may seem really awkward to us, right? We're like, would somebody have the gall just to walk into my house like that? Well, in those days, Middle Eastern homes were built in such a way that people could kind of walk in and out easily. They didn't necessarily have doors that, that shut. They were open air kind of uh, venues, and, uh, and so they would have courtyards where the townspeople would gather to eat or talk or maybe hear a famous rabbi teach. And so there was probably a lot of people milling around that weren't even invited to the party, but they were participating in it from the outside looking in, if you will. And so here was this, this woman who had heard that Jesus was eating at Simon's house, and she wanted to take Jesus up on that offer for forgiveness and rest. And so she walked in with her alabaster jar containing this precious perfume, and she stood there weeping at Jesus' feet. And in those days, as I'm sure you've heard, people would eat not sitting in a chair like we do. They would eat lying down on cushions, and they would would prop themselves up on their left elbow, and they would kind of lay their bodies out and and, uh, eat with their right hand. Their legs would be and their feet would be stretched out away from the table, but they would be in someone else's face or at least in close proximity to someone else's face. And so uh, most of the roads uh, in those days were unpaved. Everyone wore sandals, and so it was common for people's feet to get dusty and muddy and smelly. And that's why it was customary before eating dinner that you would have your feet washed. And it was the host's job 
to provide someone to wash the feet of their guests, but Simon had failed to do so, or at least to offer that courtesy to Jesus. Now just imagine, if you can, for a moment, the tension in the air when this sinful woman intruded into this pious Pharisee's house. I mean, this took a lot of guts for her to do this, by the way. She knew she would be stared at, possibly insulted, worse, physically abused, manhandled, kicked out of the house, thrown out on the street. But the fact that none of these things mattered to her, at least enough to stop her from doing what she did, shows how repentant she was and how desperately she wanted to be forgiven and to express her love and gratitude to Jesus. I mean, she was so overcome with emotion, she was apparently sobbing there uncontrollably, and her tears were falling on Jesus' feet, and it mixed with the dust that had been there that had never been washed off, and she, she probably realized that he had been treated disgracefully by Simon, and so she wanted to to fix that, and so she bent down to show him honor. And she loosened her hair, her long hair, and began wiping his dirty feet with her hair, which, by the way, was socially unacceptable for a woman to let down her hair in public. In fact, a woman could be divorced for that. That's how serious it was. It was the rabbis put it in the same category as if she exposed her breasts. And if this wasn't bad enough, she begins kissing Jesus' feet over and over again, which was, again, a sign of utmost respect and affection. And then she poured out this expensive perfume all over his feet. And I think what we have here is a, a beautiful expression of someone so caught up in adoration of Christ that she was oblivious to anyone or anything around her. She forgot about everything but, uh, but Jesus. And she didn't care what other people thought of her. And I think that's the way it should be when we worship Christ. Everything else should fade into the background. We shouldn't care about what people around us are doing or what they're thinking of us. I think sometimes we're too hung up with, uh, if I do this or if I don't do this, what will... What will the person sitting next to me or behind me or in front of me think of me? Now, granted, there's a, a balance, right, between not caring what others are thinking of us and not being a distraction to those around us. And that's something that the Lord leaves for us to sort out in our own hearts and our minds. But I think we have a great example of, of just unadulterated worship of Christ. Well, the intrusion is met with indignation. Notice verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, as he claims to be, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner, i.e. an immoral woman. Simon saw this as a scandalous act taking place in his own living room. He was appalled. He was indignant in his heart. And again, he was thinking to himself here. Note that. He didn't say anything out loud. He's just thinking to himself, if this guy really was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would not receive this from her. He would rebuke her, and he would send her away. How could he let this wicked woman touch him and defile him like that? And you know the Pharisees were all about keeping themselves set apart. Don't touch me. Don't defile me. I'm holier than thou. Simon may have also been thinking, this is perfect. This is working out better than I could have imagined. He's playing right into my hands. 
But little did he know that he was actually playing right into Jesus' hands. And he didn't realize that Jesus not only knew who this woman was, but Jesus also knew what Simon was thinking. And he proved that he really was a prophet by reading Simon's mind. And so let's look at the interrogation. Verse 40. And Jesus answered him. Answered him? He didn't say anything. Luke's point is that Jesus was answering his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. So as often as Jesus did, he told a simple story followed by a question. The story was that of a lender who had loaned some money to two individuals. One owed him 50 denarii, the other 500 denarii. A denarius was a Roman silver coin worth one day's wage. And so one would have to work 50 days to pay off his debt. The other would have to work 500 days. So you could either work a month and a half to pay off your debt, or you could work a year and a half to pay off your debt. Well, the point was neither of them were able to pay off their debt or pay back what they owed the lender. So the, the lender, in the kindness of his heart, graciously forgave them the debt. You don't owe me a penny. You're free to go. And Jesus asked Simon a question with an obvious answer. But notice Simon, probably by this time, realized he was getting reeled in by Jesus and didn't want to make it seem as obvious as it was. And so Simon answered and said, well, I, what? Suppose <laughs> the one whom he forgave more. Really, Simon? Is it just, you, you really just suppose? See, he realized that instead of Jesus falling into his trap, he had fallen into Jesus' trap. And so he was reluctant to answer because he knew his answer was going to condemn him. And Jesus affirmed Simon's answer. Simon, you're exactly right. Now let's look at the insinuation. The insinuation, verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Simon, or Jesus, applied this story to Simon and this woman. They were the two debtors that he was talking about. And based on what Jesus was saying here, the custom of the day was whenever a guest entered a home, the host would wash their feet, he would kiss them on the cheek, and he would anoint, he would anoint their head with oil. That was just common courtesy of the day. And Jesus confronted Simon that he had neglected to extend these common courtesies that a guest usually received. He was essentially saying, Simon, you've got some bad manners, man. But this woman, on the other hand, she's treated me in the exact opposite way. She went far beyond the common courtesies to show me how much she loved me. Instead of water, she used her own tears. Instead of kissing my cheeks, she kissed my feet. Rather than some cheap olive oil on my head, she poured expensive perfume on my feet. 
And then notice verse 7, which is the key verse of this whole story. He said, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So Jesus drove home the point. He says, Simon, listen, the fact that you showed me little or no love insinuates that you've not been forgiven for your sin. And the reason you haven't been forgiven for your sin is because you don't think you have any sin to be forgiven for. But the fact that this woman demonstrated such lavish love towards me proves it that she's been forgiven. And the reason she's been forgiven is because she knows she's a sinner who's in desperate need of forgiveness. Simon had no problem seeing that this woman was a sinner, but he couldn't see that he was one too. He was the classic Pharisee. In the story in Luke 18, verse 9, that Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. It's exactly what Simon was doing. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. He wasn't praying to God, he was praying to himself. By the way, self-righteous people don't pray to God. They don't need God. They pray to themselves. They talk to themselves. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That story in Luke 18 and this story in Luke 7 reveal two different attitudes that are in contrast regarding sin and forgiveness and, and love. Simon's attitude was that he had no sin. And so there was no need for forgiveness. And because there's no need for forgiveness, there's no need to love the forgiver. The woman, on the other hand, she knew that she had an enormous amount of sin in her life. And she was in great need for forgiveness. And therefore, she owed great love to the one who forgave her. I think for us to consider this morning a lack of love for Christ or a lack of gratitude to Christ is an indication that we are self-righteous. A lack of love for Christ, a lack of gratitude for the cross is an indication that we are self-righteous. We don't see ourselves as the wretched sinners that we are. See, the only difference between Simon and this woman that it was this, her sin was known by everyone. His sin was just hidden in his heart. He was just as much of a sinner as she was. His sin was just not as public. Both were spiritually bankrupt. Both owed a debt that neither of them could pay. That was the point. The difference was she knew it. She knew she couldn't pay it back herself. He didn't. And as we've, we learn from the Gospels over and over and over, time and time again, Jesus Christ paid the debt for all those who are willing to repent of their sin and place their faith 
in his perfect life and his sin-bearing death for their salvation. She repented. She believed. He didn't. And the proof of her salvation was her grateful love for Christ. Because it's totally natural for a person who's been truly saved to have a, a heart that's overflowing with love and gratitude to Christ for all that he's done for them. And so if there's no love for Christ in your heart, it may indicate that you've never been truly saved. If there's no gratitude in your heart for the cross, it's likely because you've never truly felt the magnitude of your sin. You've, truly, you've never truly sensed your need for forgiveness. You're just like Simon. You're merely patronizing Christ. That's what he was doing. He was just patronizing Christ here. And I think there's a lot of people going to church every Sunday in churches all across America, all across the world, who are merely patronizing Christ. They're just kind of going through the motions. They're putting in their time. They're, 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 they're going to church and they're, 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 they're praying before meals and they're maintaining a good moral reputation. They're just kind of mailing it in. But they're not a true believer. You might call them a make-believer. Why? Because the true test of genuine saving faith is, is love for Christ. Have you ever used that as assurance of your salvation? Sometimes you, you wonder, am I, am I really saved? And the very first thing we t all tend to think about is, well, when I was seven, or when I was at summer camp, or when I was at, and you think about the, the, the experience you had when you heard the gospel and you became a Christian, you prayed the prayer, the event, right? And sometimes that's fuzzy, especially for those of us that got saved when we were small, when we were younger, and it's like, wow, did I, man, what did I actually hear, and did I really pray the right thing? And, 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 and we forget, the Bible talks about Fruit that should be evident in our lives if we truly know Christ. And that's present tense fruit. And so one of the first things you should ask yourself is forget about what you did when you were seven or at summer camp or whatever. That may have been when you were saved. I'm not saying that's not a legitimate time of when you were born again. But what about today? Do you love Christ? Can you honestly say that you love Christ? Not perfectly, but, but do you love Christ? Do you hate sin? Do you really desire to obey the Lord and follow Christ? That should be true of everyone who is a true believer. In fact, Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1.8. He was writing to Christians and he said, and though you have not seen him, you Love him. That's pretty radical, by the way. Talk about faith, right? Nobody in here has ever seen Jesus. We've read about Jesus. We've seen him in Scripture. But we've never seen him, and yet we love him. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God has transformed our lives and given us a love for this unseen Savior of ours. And so the question is, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? And then lastly, let's look at the induction. The induction, and this is the, the thought of inductive Bible study where you draw a conclusion from something you're reading here. Notice verse 48 then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Notice the wheels are starting to turn in the other guests' minds. Who is this guy who forgives sins? Last time I checked, there's only one person I know of who can forgive sin, and who is that? 
God. And so they're making some inductions here. But notice he says, your sins have been forgiven. You've been released from your sins. You've been, your sins have been canceled. That's what the, the word forgiven means, that your sins have been canceled out. You've been freed. You've been released. And this is in the perfect tense here, which was used in the Greek language to talk about an action that was completed in the past with results that continue into the present. In other words, what Jesus was saying is that, hey, you're, you've been forgiven. You have been forgiven for everything that you've ever done. And guess what? That'll apply to everything that you end up doing as well. That's the beauty of forgiveness is that, that God forgives us in Christ for sins past, present, and future. And again, the question that the guests were naturally asking, who is this guy who, who, who's claiming to forgive sin? I mean, this is, this is tantamount to claiming to be God. In fact, that's exactly what they had already concluded back in Luke chapter 5, verse 20. This is what Jesus said to the, the man who was let down through the roof by his friends. Remember that? They couldn't get their buddy, their their paralyzed buddy, into the, the, the house because it was so crowded, so they tore open the ceiling and they let him down right in front of Jesus. And he said, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so the induction here is that Jesus is God, and he has the authority to forgive sin. And so he said to the woman, verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice, her faith is what saved her, not her love for Christ. She wasn't forgiven because of her love for Christ but because of her humble trust and dependence on Christ. And the reason why she loved Christ is because she was forgiven by Christ. And the reason why she was forgiven by Christ is because she had faith in Christ. She put her faith in Christ. So her love was not the reason for her salvation, but the result of her salvation. All these things that she did were evidence of her faith in Christ. And so again, a great lesson here that forgiveness flows through faith. The conduit by which we receive God's forgiveness for our sins is by faith. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works so that no one can boast. And so he says, your faith has saved you Go in peace. Again, can you imagine how that last phrase resonated in the, in the heart and mind of that woman? After all that she had been doing, after all that she had been through, after all that she had brought upon herself because of her own sinfulness, this, this chaotic life that she had lived ultimately because she had been at war with God. She had been separated from God because of her sin. Now that had been removed, the war was over. She had been reconciled with God. Through Jesus Christ, the burden of her sin was lifted. Her, her sin had been taken away. The guilt was gone. The chaos was over. All the pain, the, the loneliness, the depression, the drinking, perhaps. She had finally found what she was looking for. Lasting joy, lasting peace.
Have you experienced that in your life? I mean, this is just one of hundreds of stories in the Bible that all point to the same thing, and that is this, that Jesus will forgive anyone, anyone, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, if you will, if you will turn from your sin and you'll trust Christ alone for your salvation, you can hear these same words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Doesn't matter, again, how many sins you've committed or how bad you might think you are. God can forgive you right now, today. Today can be the day of your salvation. The Bible says if we confess our sins, in other words, if we admit I've done it. I'm guilty. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, all our sinfulness. For those of us who've already experienced that forgiveness, we enjoy that peace of being reconciled to God. I think there's something here in this story for us as well. I think it's a critical reminder that our ultimate motive for obeying and serving Christ should be grateful love in response to all Christ has done to pay our debt and forgive our sins. Sometimes, I mean, there's a lot of things that motivate us to do things for Christ. A lot of times it's guilt. Guilt that we put on ourselves or we let other people put on us. We, we, we have these to-do lists or we have these expectations. And, and if you live your life that way as a Christian, you know that that kind of gets old after a while. And without grateful love for Christ, fueling our obedience and our service for Christ, man, it'll, it'll inevitably falter and fail. We'll, we'll burn out. If we're just going through the motions, if, it, if we're not motivated, again, out of love and gratitude for Christ, that's why I'm here this morning. Why are you here this morning? Was it just because that's what you do on Sunday morning? Or you were just so grateful for your salvation? This was an opportunity to show much love to Christ. And so why wouldn't I be here? One of my favorite men in church history is a guy by the name of J.C. Ryle. And he's written a fabulous commentary on the Gospels called Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. And I want to close by just reading for you what he said about this passage. And specifically, focusing in on this point of grateful love. He said, quote, we see in this passage that grateful love is the secret of doing much for Christ. More doing for Christ is the universal demand of all the churches. It is the one point on which all are agreed, all desire to see among Christians more good works, more self-denial, more practical obedience to Christ's commands. But what will produce these things? In other words, we all feel that pressure as believers, and it's not necessarily a bad pressure, by the way, to want to obey and serve Christ. That's a good thing. That's a good pressure. But what will produce these things, this obedience and this self-denial, self-denying and self-sacrificing service? He said this, nothing, nothing but love. He said there will be more done for Christ Excuse me, there will never be more done for Christ till there is more hearty love for Christ. The fear of punishment, the desire of reward, the sense of duty are all useful arguments in their way to persuade men to holiness, but they are all weak and powerless until a man loves Christ. He said, let this mighty principle get a hold of a man and you will see his whole life changed. 
Let the mighty principle abide in our memories and sink down into our hearts. It is one of the great cornerstones of the whole gospel. He said the only way to make men holy is to teach and preach free and full forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The secret to being holy ourselves is to know and feel that Christ has pardoned our sins. The heart which has experienced the pardoning love of Christ is the heart which loves Christ and strives to glorify him. And then he ends with this. He says, let us ask ourselves in conclusion, what we are doing or what are we doing for Christ's glory? What are we doing for Christ's glory? What kind of lives are we living? What proof are we making of our love to him who loved us and died for our sins? The man whose sins are really cleansed away will always show by his ways that he loves the Savior who cleansed them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for cleansing us from our sins. And Lord, we know from this story that it's impossible to have been cleansed from your sin and not live a life of love to Christ. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace to prove our love to you in all sorts of different ways of obedience and service, saying no to sin, saying yes to righteousness, reaching out, meeting a need, sharing the gospel. Lord, these are all ways that we can demonstrate much love to you. Lord, and I pray if there's someone here who's yet to experience that forgiveness, Lord, that you would open up their minds to understand the gospel today, that you would grant them repentance and faith in Christ, Lord, that they would be able to experience this peace, Lord, that this woman did, that, that they've been looking for, even as she was looking for and longing for, for so many years, Lord, that if somebody here like her, Lord, that you would pierce their heart today and bring them into Christ's fold, for Christ's glory we ask in Jesus' name, amen.